Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This is the second series of Surroundscapes and it's focused on the future of the workplace. And in today's episode, I'm talking to Michael Stevie from the architects Ankram Moisson. So welcome, Michael. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for having me today. You're very welcome. So I'd like to first start by asking you uh, to, to give us a little bit of detail on your company, on Ankram Moisson. Sure. So Ankram Moisson is based in Portland, Oregon, although we have offices in San Francisco and Seattle as well. Between the three offices, we total about uh, 300 professionals, and we do a variety of um, we have a variety of disciplines. We everything from urban planning to all manner of housing and workplace. We do office buildings, healthcare, brand, and hospitality. So we're sort of firing on all cylinders at the firm. I myself am in the workplace group in interiors, and so we I specialize. With, with our team on developing office space for tech and fast-growing businesses. Great. And I believe that your title is Principal and UX Experience Strategist at the company? Uh, yes, User Experience Strategist, and I am a principal at the firm. And although I, I am an architect, I am in the interiors group, but I also um, have a background in... Um, in experience design. And so at the firm that really um, my background and my schooling, having a double degree in architecture and interiors with a minor in art, it just sort of all accumulated into this um, pretty well-rounded sort of approach to my career and my discipline. And so that's how I have landed in that strategist position. Excellent. Um... Have you got any more detail? You said your background in experience design. Were you doing experience design before you came to Ankrum Moisson? Yeah, so I've been at Ankrum for about three years. And before that, I had my own firm. It was very very much smaller than Ankrum is. And uh, we started that in, oh, probably, I would call our first experience design was happening at the first tech boom uh, in the Portland area, probably in the in the late 90s. And that was where we, for the first time, had exposure in doing office design for clients with tech background that had completely different experiences than the clients we were working with before the tech came along. And so the first time in my experience doing offices, in addition to the schedule and the budget and all those important components to an office design, there was this new discussion around culture and how do you have a startup culture and fortify it within the space. And so that is why we brought into our design practice at that time, experience design that is everything from analog to digital. And it's usually something that is engaging by telling a story or being interactive or communicating information, any of those things. And so 
Um, some specific examples of experience design at that time were, you know, doing doing things that people hadn't really done before, like having uh, cameras in various offices and then creating a collage out of the monitors so you can go up and wave to a camera in Palo Alto while your coworker is is in the lobby of your Portland office and things things like that, things that just engage the culture and fortify the communication and the creativity amongst various offices or different locations within the same office. So when you talk about um, startup culture, were you working with startup companies or were you working with bigger companies that kind of wanted to be more like startup in the way they work? You know, that that notion of bigger companies wanting to hold on to their startup culture came a little bit later. Uh, this experience that I'm talking about was truly a startup group of businesses. And they were, they were the types of startups that were, you know, getting their first and second round of financing in place. They were growing very fast. And it was one of those really exciting times where you've got lightning in a bottle and, you know, these, these uh, companies would be moving into a new office while you're designing the next office that they haven't even moved into yet. And then you're identifying what's the next office after that. And so um, a few of these groups that I was working with, I would do, you know, eight offices for them in four years. And wow. so that's the, that's the best kind of client to have the kind that, until they start growing. Right. <laughs> so and each, office got a little, each office got a little bit bigger, a little bit faster paced, but also a deeper into their culture because I was in place for every office that was coming along. And so, you know, this, uh, this office that, you know, now has 500 employees, I used to be able to name every single person that worked there. So um, when you're that deep into their foundation of the, of their culture, I think you do good work for them. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk about culture and startups, were they thinking in terms of their culture, kind of consciously or was that something you were bringing to them uh it, it, there's a variety there um i was fortunate that the probably my my fastest growing groups absolutely had an understanding of their culture and what they wanted to hold on to and what they wanted to fortify with their space design uh other groups that maybe had already grown a little bit uh and were on their second round of funding they then were talking about, well, what can we do to get our startup culture back? And at that point, you're almost a little bit too far down the road, but there's always things that you can do when you truly understand the essence of a business and what their goals are, that you you can bring back whatever culture was was true and honest to them, and then perhaps work with them to introduce some new components to their culture that uh, the only... The only rule is that it has to be honest. You can't force a culture. It just has to be true to the spirit of who that team is. Yeah, that's really interesting. It was something I'd gone through in my previous company where we really wanted to be more mindful about about our culture. And we were a 40-year-old company. So mm -hmm. I remember having a discussion with Simon Sinek about, you know, he's he's classically talking about start with why and and yeah. Often the why of companies with very strong why companies is uh, comes from the founder of the company. And can you can you backfill that when when the founder's long gone? And it was kind of an interesting discussion. So so you moved to Anchor and Moisson. Uh, you have a back. You have an architecture degree. How do you personally and as a company see trends? 
even before this pandemic in uh, workplace design and, and the way people are designing and inhabiting different workspaces? So before I get into answering your question, I just want to define two different sides to every office. One is the landlord side who they own the building and quite often it's multi-story and there's a lobby and elevators and shared common spaces like conferencing facilities or fitness or bicycle parking. The other side of those buildings is the tenant side, the people who rent from the, the building owner and they have their own offices. They're responsible for their own space inside there, but they're not always providing all of these amenities if the building itself is providing these amenity spaces. Then the other side of a tenant is the type of tenant that is a tenant that takes up an entire building. They may or may not own it, and it may or may not be part of a campus. They might have a whole campus. Like for us here in Portland, it's Nike has an amazing campus, and they they uh, occupy the whole space. Those tenants that occupy the whole building or have a campus, they are responsible for their own amenity spaces. The reason I'm talking about amenities is to answer your question. It's because the trend that we were seeing over the past 10-ish years is that it's been an absolute arms race for these building owners or tenants to have the biggest and best and brightest amenities, the best fitness area, the best bicycle parking, the best gaming zones, the best conferencing center and coffee bar and on and on. You could just, uh, just keep naming them. You know, before that, it was, you know, ping pong tables and kombucha taps. And now it's it, an absolute arms race in getting the, the very best amenities. The building owners do it so they can get the very best tenants. And they're really subsidizing their space by providing all of these additional tenants. And they can get top dollar rent for, for those in those buildings where they have offered a lot of amenities. Tenants who uh, provide their own amenities is to get the top tier employees in their space. So it's really a win-win-win cycle of everybody comes out with uh, something positive out of that approach. So we saw that happening over the past decade and the, the lounges were getting bigger and more expensive furniture. The coffee shops were getting bigger and brighter. The fitness centers were like spas, you know, they just went on and on and on. And then in March, it just halted on a dime because nobody could use those spaces as they were designed or intended to be used. So now these businesses and building owners have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to have the best spaces throughout their offices and buildings that now really need to be rethought. And that is a huge conversation now about how do we repurpose these spaces. That's that's fascinating. Um, and there's so many ways we could go from here, but I just want to think about the actual workspaces. So not the, the, the amenities, but the actual kind of physical workspaces. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about the move to open office and away from open office and, and uh, having employees have a variety of workspace places that they can inhabit according to what sort of work they're doing. So how, even before this, did clients move away from kind of rigid, defined for decades workspaces and more towards um, non-traditional workspaces? Uh, 
Yes, but there's never a cookie cutter answer. You know, some offices very strictly say like we're 100% open office and everybody's got an eight by eight space or a six by eight space. Um, that That's very strict and rare. And it, I'm sure it works for some organizations, but my experience in the hundreds of offices that we've designed is that every solution has been different. But what is consistent is that for employees to do their best work, they need to have choice and they need to be able to get up and leave their workstation. They need to have a place where they can focus or collaborate or play or exchange ideas or tell stories or just, you know, do some good old fashioned research to fortify the foundation of, uh, the, of the project they're working on. So choice is the number one thing. And, um, that has been true for, for many, many years. The idea of never having a private office, uh, that came up, came along about six or seven years ago, um, has definitely gone away. I mean, there's, you have to have that discussion in every, every project that you design. Is it appropriate? Is it not appropriate? And sometimes some organizations, they just really have a culture or a workflow that requires that a few of their um, leadership or certain people uh, throughout the organization need to have a private office. So that, that um, the phrase private office being a dirty word, uh, you know, no longer really exists. It's really in the conversation and needs to be considered there's also a hybrid of uh, happening between private offices and open workspace where perhaps you uh, have even the very top leadership is out in the open workspace, but then they, they may have a reserved conference room that is just behind their desk that maybe even has some confidential locking files in it. So it's kind of an extension of their workspace, but it's still definitely only used for conferencing or meeting or when they need to have very hyper-focused time and they can slide the doors shut and lock themselves in. But 95% of the time they are out and accessible and open in the, in the workspace. That's, that's probably one of the bigger trends happening now is accessibility to leadership, but also choice to have focused and private time. <laughs> one of the, one of the interesting spaces I visited as part of, uh, a conference was uh, one that actually we equipped in a previous, I equipped in a previous life, life which was a Boston consulting groups uh, offices in uh, Hudson Yard in, in uh, New York. Mm -hmm. And there it was interesting because all of the partners had offices, but when they weren't there and they weren't there a lot, they got converted to huddle rooms. So it's like a dual purpose thing. It could be a huddle room. You could move the monitor so that, that it was, either facing you at the desk or it was on the wall and you kind of sat around the desk. Is that unusual or is that something that's happening more and more? I, I think it's happening more and more. And that's a great example. And the reason why it's happening more and more is exactly what we were talking about earlier is building owners and tenants are really in a place right now where they have to reimagine and repurpose many of the spaces they have. And so Without a doubt, one of the key ways to do that is to make every space a multifunctional space. And that's why we, at our office, we call it, you know, our cross-platform approach. It just because we're designing an office doesn't mean we're not going to utilize our healthcare team and our brand studio and our urban planning groups. I mean, all of those can um, participate in the design of an office and hospitality. 
of course, you know, there's that, that level of expectation that people have around um, how gracious spaces will be. And that's where hospitality designers really excel. And so, you know, an example of this, uh, to jump on to what you were saying about, you know, executive offices that turn into huddle rooms, I think it's quite likely that moving forward, many of the really top tier facility or um, fitness facilities in some of these offices are going to have to have a healthcare component to them for uh, evaluating employees' well-being and healthfulness. And so there, there we've just brought together, you know, two disciplines: our healthcare team and our workplace team. But then also, what used to be a reception area in a building is going to have to be a health screening zone with the graciousness of a hotel check-in. And so we've brought in healthcare and hospitality and workplace again. So our cross-platform approach seems to really be working well to really make these spaces multi-purpose. Hmm. I'm glad you brought in the point about there being tenants and there being landlords. And the, those are both your customers to some extent. Um, yeah. What I one of the things I've seen is as buildings become more well become smarter, there are more things that used to be add-ons that are now like in the core of the building. Technologies like you know security and and really holistic HVAC lighting, in some cases audio video, IT infrastructure that was kind of an add-on before, but but now buildings are being designed with that sort of IoT infrastructure kind of thought of right at the beginning. Is that something you've seen as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, it's, it's a big part of that is technology, but the technology is being leveraged to allow people access to daylight and fresh air and you know all of those things that are really human necessities it's not just about you know having an iot experience and so our own office in uh, portland uh, we actually have operable windows in it, which is unusual for uh, the buildings only three years old and so quite often you know buildings you know, the past 20 years or so have been not had operable windows in them. So this is a brand new building with operable windows, but the building is teaching us how to use the windows because um, there are sensors uh, around the, in the MEP system that tells us when this little green light goes on on the wall, we can go open the window that's near that green light without compromising the HVAC system or mm. its um, effectiveness. And so it, the building is telling us, like, you can open windows on the west side of, of me, but you can't open the windows on the east side of me. And so uh, that's a very good example of a smart building teaching its occupants how to how to uh, work with the building. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I think after the summer, we've had air quality monitors as well with the, yeah. the wildfires that have come into Portland and and both you and I have experienced this summer days where you just couldn't go out uh, because the air quality was too bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a, another example is a project here in Portland that I worked on. Uh, you walk in the front door and there's a whole um, dashboard on the wall that tells you 
um, how much power is being generated from the photovoltaics on the roof, how much water is in the cistern over in the parking area, and what is the air quality in the conferencing center. And so this whole diagnostic uh, of a building, like the minute you walk in, you can just go up and touch the screen and figure out, you know, how do I get to this area I need to go to and what is the air quality in that area? So that's, I think that's going to become pretty mainstay and common in new class A office moving forward. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I'm going to ask you, break off and ask you a question that, that is a hot topic of conversation within the AV business. Um, and kind of going to put you a little bit on the spot here, but particularly within the audio part of the AV business, there is a, there is a perception that architects design bad sounding buildings on purpose uh, because a lot of the architectural trends over the last few years have been highly reflective materials, concrete, glass, kind of wood. And that's made the audio part very um, challenging when you come in to install a, a system or even acoustic treatments. My own personal theory of it, knowing a number of architects, is it's not that you do it on purpose. It's just that you haven't had a lot of training in this, the sound side of the business. What's your take on this? So uh, I agree with a lot of what you said, that there is obviously some poor quality audio environments out there. Um, part of it is not just that architects design things the way we want them to look. Part of it is that we're working with clients and what does the client want? And the client says, I want low maintenance floors. I want lots of daylight threading through the whole space. I don't want any dark corridors in the middle of the space. It almost all leads to concrete floors and glass walls everywhere, which is the worst sort of environment you can have for sound quality. So we immediately, as soon as we start talking about glass and concrete, we start to get into the audio talk about how do we minimize that that echoing and and everything. And so we also work with acousticians, you know, on the design of our space. Usually the solution is in the soft seating and the ceiling, varying, you know, levels of materials that you can be using. We quite often will put, uh, you know, unusual sort of angles to some of our glass walls. So it breaks the sound up more. It's those 90 degrees, you know, or, or parallel glass yeah. or concrete floors that, that really make the sound bounce all over the place. And so, yeah, we absolutely, it's in the very earliest conversations um, when we're starting to do the schematic designs about how is the sound quality going to be impacted here. That's great to hear. And, and I hope it reassures some of our listeners, because I think, you know, as I say, there's a perception in within sound people that architects are our enemies, and I really don't see that. I see um, that it's a collaboration. But one of the things you said was I kind of want to focus in a little bit more on, which is all of those things that the tenants wanted uh, were to do with one sense, the sense of sight, you know, how dark something is, how... And, you know, we have five senses and, and one of the one of the themes in in all sorts of public spaces is this creation of multisensory immersive environments, experiences. And so much of that is using as many of your senses as you can. And a lot of business for for decades, for, for so long, 
has just focused on this one sense, our sense of sight and our sense of, of um, sound, our sense of touch, our sense of uh, smell, our sense of taste have been really secondary to that sight sense. Do you, are you finding your, your, being asked to or thinking about more of the senses as you're designing buildings? Yeah, I believe that we really take all senses into account when we are designing. So for instance, um, you know, sound. I think that, again, when we were talking earlier about your physical workspace, where does someone do their work? Where do they do their best work? Well, they need to have choice to do that. And it might be different every day. So one of the things we do are um, in our uh, designs is put in loud rooms and quiet rooms. The quiet rooms are like libraries, lots of soft seating, dim light, no technology allowed, not an iPad, a phone or anything. You go in and you've got paper and pencil and you can't talk. And a lot of people use it to meditate, but the sound quality is critical to that experience. The other is the loud room, the room that has a snare drum in it and you've got you know, recording studio quality, you know, sound absorption around the per perimeter of it. This can be in the middle of an office. People can go in, scream and do whatever they need to do, play the guitar, pound the drums, and it doesn't disrupt the rest of the office. Now that takes a lot of designing and planning to execute something like that. But um, again, it's, it's audio choice. The other thing is uh, there's a lot of discussion and consideration about security and privacy. And how can you have a choice to do your best work and perhaps be talking on the phone or talking on a video call, but knowing that someone, you know, 10 feet away can't really hear you. And so we do a lot of the, the, those solutions with soft seating that come up around you and create these kind of privacy fabric shells. Uh, so you can use your technology and feel pretty secure that what you're talking about is not being overheard. Mm -hmm. at least by someone who's not within your direct sight line. Yeah, that's a that's an important consideration. Um, when we were talking before this, you mentioned you had four different functions within your job. There's the uh, workplace interiors. There's the user experience strategist bit. You're also involved with uh, the retail side of the business, uh, designing retail spaces. But the fourth one uh, you talked about was team touchdown, which was bringing people back into the workspace after they've had to be out of it um, during the pandemic. So I want to really dig into that part of what you've been doing, both how businesses have been taking people out of the workspace when they had to, um, how they're bringing them back, and what you think this is going to mean long term. Mm -hmm. So... Um... Team Touchdown is a group of designers in our office that are uh, in the interior design workplace studio. And we uh, at first got together so we could talk about what is going to be the best way for all of our employees to come back into Anchor Moisson, our own, our own offices. That quickly turned into conversations with brokers and building owners and tenants and other clients about how can we be a resource for them to move into the office, back into the office? So we have um, really deepened that conversation. We started by just really understanding uh, what the 
thought leaders were saying out there in the world, doing a ton of webinars and just really reading every article we could. We were just absorbing everything. And this is back in March and April, you know, when a lot of people were doing information shares and really trying to figure out where this is going. Well, at that time, we all thought we were going to go back to the office in July. And here we are another several months later. And um, it's looking like many more months ahead of us before we actually get in at full capacity. So um, what we found is that wellness is the most important thing to consider when you are talking about coming back into the office and trust, making sure that the people that you have chosen to be around, if you should choose to come back into the office, um, that you trust them to uh, respect your decisions around healthfulness. And so um, that has been the number one thing that we dig in with all of our clients and with our own culture is to understand what does that organization need to make that a successful journey back into the office. And so again, there's no cookie cutter approach, but we have developed some tools where we ask like just a ton of questions around, um, you know, what, what are your biggest concerns around technology? What are your biggest concerns around distancing? What are your biggest concerns about circulation monitoring? What are your greatest concerns about clients coming in the office? How do you want to present yourself when a client comes in so they know that you're taking the appropriate measures to make a safe environment for them? So we just need to help every organization fire on all cylinders there to make sure that that everyone feels safe. They know that the leadership is making the right decisions. They know that enhancements have been made in the appropriate areas for air quality and access to, to daylight and, and outdoor space. And um, it's it's been quite a journey learning with these organizations and um, sharing with these organizations about how to make this the best experience possible. The uh, It's been very interesting to see the shift in expectations where, you know, up until I think this pandemic, the expectation of employers of their employees was probably greater than the expectation that the employees had of the employer. That has shifted. The expectations of the employees are paramount to the success of a business. An organization, leadership, they need to listen to the staff that's going to be performing work for them, you know, their employees, and they have to be heard. They have to have a healthy experience at the office. They have to feel safe. They have to feel trusted. They have to be able to trust the people around them. They have to know that they have a space that is theirs when they need it or shared when they uh, choose to have it, but that it's being cleaned properly between uses. And a lot of that has to do with technology, really, to have electronic monitoring devices on tabletops or on uh, seating areas to that actually read when was the last time this this was cleaned. And um, there, I really think there's going to be an app renaissance coming as we re-enter the workplace. I think that it will be difficult for people to do their work in an office without having their phone on them all the time. And that can be, you know, we've we've always used our computers and phones for the past several years to schedule conference rooms or collaboration areas, but it's quite possible that these apps are gonna have to be so sophisticated that you will schedule your time to use the microwave and it's gonna tell you what path to walk through the office to get there to maintain appropriate distancing. It could be that you uh, schedule to be on a waiting list for a large, let's say, uh, 
break room area that has uh, occupancy sensors in it. And as soon as there are a few enough occupants to uh, allow others in without compromising the distancing, then you get a notice on your phone and you can go use that. Bathrooms might work the same way. You might get alerts when when uh, some space in a bathroom opens up and you can flag it right there, hold it and go, I mean, hold the space on your phone <laughs> and uh, uh, that sort of thing. So I, I think that every business is going to have to take very seriously for a very long time that the expectation of their employees is that every decision that's made is based on their wellness. Yeah, that's, that's brought in a whole load of interesting points, some of which I hadn't really thought about, about this reservation kind of, of, of even spaces like toilets. But it's interesting, and, and my own company is a good example of this. We had a relatively, I'm going to say, old-fashioned office culture. And, um, you know, it was expected. I work remotely, but I'm very much the exception. Most people go to the office you know, sit at their desk, work, go to meeting rooms. And and that's the way our company has developed. Now, of course, everyone's had to work remotely. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that people have been at least as effective and maybe more effective working remotely. Now, when it's safe to, and, and we're in Canada, the, the main office, so we have different kind of regulations up there. But when it's safe to, we'll be bringing people back into the office. But there's two things there. First of all, the employees, you know, looking at it saying, well, I like working at home. I didn't have to commute. I got an extra, whatever it is, an hour a day for my own time. I could create my own space that worked for me. Conversely, I miss the people. Um, mm -hmm. And likewise, the employers I imagine when people come in, it's going to be initially with social distances, distancing, so with uh, restricted occupancy. So they're going to have to bring some people back first and then maybe have one day on, one day off, or, or I don't know, there's a whole load of people, ways that you could do that. Yeah. How do you think that that's going to play out kind of culturally where people now can see that they can work quite happily from home uh, employers might want that to some extent but also want to build team spirit and collaboration and things that are better done when people you know are in the same physical space as each other yeah absolutely um those are good questions so culturally we we talk a lot about mentoring at our office and um and our conversation around mentoring has really elevated since we've done the working at home situation that we're in. And so there's the, you know, there's the type of mentoring that you um, say, Hey, Graham, let's go grab a cup of coffee. I want to ask you about your, your successes. The other one is more formal, a mentoring program, which we do have at the office and we partner people with specific junior, senior combinations. But the big topic is the mentoring by osmosis. There is nothing like sitting next to a senior person that's of your same discipline and just overhearing how they talk to clients and, and eavesdropping on how they so solve challenges and just watching how they communicate and how they go about their daily business. That is so valuable. And you can never do that over Zoom. It's impossible. 
And so that's one of our biggest goals is to make sure that our junior staff actually gets that type of uh, mentoring fr from all three levels. And if you only get two of them, that's not enough. There's that the, the third one that is so important. So that is one thing culturally. And we have noticed, not just at my office, but our clients, many of our uh, the organizations that we work with have hired people since we've all been working from home. They've never stepped foot in the office. They've never been face-to-face -face with someone who is you know, at the office. They have done their onboarding completely digitally, virtually. And many of our clients are saying that those people are already gone. They didn't, they didn't get to that immersion into the culture and they, they were having really a soulless sort of time there. So that speaks to the huge importance of being in the office, being together. But here's the other side of that. This is kind of interesting. I, I think we've all you know been through a fire here. It's been very challenging and we've probably changed more than we think we have. And so I was back at the office the other day for just a short time because I had to do you know a quick a quick thing. So there were three of us there. We all had our masks on. We all went into a large conference room and we had to do a real quick zoom with one of our coworkers in San Francisco. The three of us were standing in that room with our masks on, distance, and the remote is sitting in the middle of the table. And we all just stared at that remote, remote with horror on our face, like, who's going to touch it? <laughs> yeah. And so that goes back to the app renaissance I was talking about, that I think our phones are going to have to turn into remotes for every room that we go into. And that that remote that has always been sitting on the, in the middle of the table or the conference phone that's always been sitting in the middle of the table, I think we'll be seeing those disappear because at least in the short term, people just don't want to touch anything. Yeah, I think we've been looking at that problem a lot as we control audio systems. Um, so we've done a number of things that we, we've uh, enabled voice control on, on our system so you can talk yeah. to them uh, via Alexa or Google Home or whatever. Um, but also, and, and a lot of Blue Sound Professionals business is in the hospitality space. And in that space, owners have not wanted their employees to have their phones in shops and you know, bars because they'll be on their phones on social media or whatever, and they want to be addressing the customers. So you've had to leave your phone in the locker room. and that, um, Whereas now, as you say, a shared physical um, interaction device is looked at with horror because it harbors germs. Whereas yeah. your own personal, you can either, either go touchless by scheduling more stuff, by uh, having voice control, or you can go touch, but touch your own thing, not a shared. Right. Exactly. That's what, we, and we refer to that as single touch, single point of touch, right? You yeah. own it. And it's also um, accelerating another trend that we've seen in the in the tech industry, which is moving from um, a location or activity based interface to a person based interface. So rather than having a touch panel in a conference room, you have your technology interface. I have my technology interface. I mean, at home, that's what I do mm -hmm. right now. You know, I've got my own thing to, to be the remote from the TV or for the hi-fi or for the thermostat or for the lights. My wife and my daughter have their own as well. So we don't have a remote for the TV now. I have my remote for the TV and she has her remote for the TV. And... And certainly things like in cars and things, 
your remotes are pre-programmed with your preferences. So as you start, you're getting your experience rather than a, a, a kind of generic experience, if you like. So it's, it's, it's interesting that it's interesting for us in the AV industry because for so many years, the professional and commercial side of it led the consumer side. Whereas in the last probably 10 years, the consumer side has led the, the professional side so that the trends, the things we do in our homes, we want to do in our offices, whereas it used to be the other way around. The facilities we had in our offices, we wanted to replicate in our homes. Is, is that something you, you're seeing as well? Well, I think that, yes. Uh, and an, an example of that is, and this isn't widely implemented yet, but I believe it's got, got to be coming along here soon, is that same process of getting into your automobile that you've got the pre-programmed settings and all of a sudden the chair moves and the steering wheel comes out and everything, just uh, the mirrors change. Everything is completely adjusted. Imagine uh, from your phone, reserving your workspace for the day. And as you approach it, the workstation is scanning your phone and it's automatically the chair is raising, the tabletop is lowering, the keyboard is pulling out and the whole thing is adjusting to your preset settings. Um, and that and that doesn't necessarily need to be from a workstation that you own and occupy all the time. It can be one that you reserve in the morning and uh, in a different part of the building than you normally even work in, but it'll be all set up for you. Uh, the digital picture frame will suddenly have the picture of your family on it and, <laughs> you know, just yeah. everything, right? And um, I think that's I think that's definitely something that we can be looking for, that, yeah. like, that hyper convenience and access. And then when you overlay that with the technology that will scan to see if that space is clean, I think you would be a really valuable asset to your employer at that time, because you're arriving to a place that you've chosen that has all the settings and everything that you have pre-programmed and are just right for you. And you know, it's safe to be there. It's clean. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the scheduling program will always only allow people to sit, you know, at a proper distance. So you don't have someone breathing down your neck right next to you. And all of that's done with technology, but ultimately what it does is empower the employee to be the best person they can be the second they arrive at their desk. Hmm. Well, I think we have to, to wind down now, although I feel that we could talk for hours. But I do want to ask you, are there, do you have any last thoughts or anything you particularly want to say kind of in conclusion to all of this? Well, you know, the I, I've already said it, but I just really want to stress uh, that wellness is the new amenity. I think that every organization needs to focus on wellness as the base of decision making for nearly everything they do. And that um, the employee's voice must be heard and in that conversation. And so um, we have done a series of employee and partner vendor client surveys so we can just keep gathering that information and hearing what people need. And uh, I would encourage everybody listening to do that as much as possible. Reach out, ask people what they need so they feel that they are coming to work as the best employee they can be for the business and uh and you know what do they need to make that happen i would ask every single person you could that excellent so i hope everyone's heard just how thoughtful michael and ankara moisten are and i think this is the case with many architects 
beyond what we think in the AV industry uh, that, that architects might be thinking about or even property developers might be thinking about in terms of, of really the, the well-being of employees and all of the different aspects that go into this. If, as a result of all of this, people want to get in touch with you, Michael, what's the best way of doing that? Probably the best would be either um, you can contact me through our website, and that is ancrummoisen.com. And I'm going to spell it because it's a little bit difficult to, to say is A-N-K-R-O-M, next word, moisen, M-O-I-S-A-N.com, although the web address is, is all that as a single word. Or you can go to uh, just email me, Michael S at anchormoison.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. And this brings to an end this episode of Surroundscapes. Please, everyone, as you're listening to this, if you like it, please rate it. Well, actually, even if you don't like it, <laughs> please rate it in your podcast service in, in uh, Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify, wherever you're listening. Uh, leave comments. Please talk to us if you'd like to suggest topics that you'd like us to talk about. Thanks so much for listening and see you soon with another episode. <laughs>